Hello, and welcome to Tipsy Tolstoy, Russian Literature for the Inebriated. I'm Matt Karasmovich, PhD student in Russian Lit. This week, thinking about what if I wasn't a PhD student anymore? Maybe I drop out. Maybe I become a microgreens farmer. Maybe I podcast full time. Who's to say? The, the, the possibilities <laughs> are really limitless. And I am Cameron Lalana. Uh, and speaking of limitless possibilities, I tried to engage in that and flew a little bit too close to the sun. Uh, my job has recently given me one of the nice new MacBook Pros with the M1 chip. And then fool that I was, I saw I saw too I saw the sun too brightly and tried to get four monitors. And so I brought it bought a triple dock. And it turns out the Apple's M1 chip can only support output to a single screen. So now fool that I am, I've got three monitors on my desk over my over my work computer, <laughs> two of which are, are completely functionless. I, I hope everybody comes and points at you and laughs. <laughs> they come from far and wide. Oh, joke's gonna be on them. I'm gonna I'm gonna hook up a PS4 to one one on the right <laughs> and track down some other some other HDMI enabled system to plug into the one on the left. That sounds like work's going well. <laughs> well, this is a podcast for me and my good pal Cameron get to unwind from our week with some Russian literature and a drink or two. Or however many it's been by this point. <laughs> Did you get started early? Oh, big time, big time. Oh, nice. My dog was being terrible. I mean, what's a man supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the one of the biggest things about this podcast, if you see a variance in, in how the episode goes, the biggest factor is whether or not we started drinking before the podcast. And if we have, how long before the podcast we started drinking? I don't know if I agree. Sometimes our people in Discord are like, this was the drunkest episode I've ever seen. And it's like, I had like a quarter of a beer on that one. I, I'm not sure what you're hearing. That's on true, that, but I, I appreciate it. I think. <laughs> I think we had two episodes in a row. One which was probably one of our drunkest ones, where we were just drinking straight liquor, and one where we were both relatively sober. And for some reason, people kept telling me that the one we were relatively sober was like, you know, like you said, the drunkest episode. <laughs> I'm uh, like, I'm not sure what to make of that. Anyways, we get smarter when we drink. I don't know. Uh, that could be it. Anyways, anyway, we're reading Stalingrad again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What part of Stalingrad are we reading, Matt? Uh, part four of the arbitrarily decided pages that I've selected. If I am correct, and I don't... do we Are we starting on 52 this time? Uh, we are doing 53 to 69. Oh, I was so close. So close. Ah, there it is. Very confusingly, part four of our series... So actually, the book itself, although it's, it is actually also divided into parts, it's divided into three parts. So... Yeah extremely confusingly part four of our podcast intersects with the ending of part one of the actual book correct but i don't know how i mean i would love if the podcast episodes aligned with the book but it just it's not gonna happen i'm not talking about 400 pages <laughs> like it would be it would take us forever we'd have to switch to six hour episodes once a month counterpoint that is basically what we did when we did our um what is to be done each of those books were between 250 and 400 pages that was a bad time that was a bad time i did not have fun <laughs> no i mean it was interesting it was interesting no, reading it but uh, before <laughs> <laughs> i thought it was interesting i went back and listened to those like a month or two ago i thought it was actually i thought they were it was interesting listening no, i think i is. i wiped that entire period from my mind uh but <laughs> i think chernyshevsky kind of slaps and i that's a really no one in my program seems to think so. Whenever you bring them up to professors, they're like, it's so boring. It's such dry writing. I I don't know. 
I don't think so. Pretty interesting 150 pages on uh, the sewing commune. <laughs> kind of enjoyed it. Almost made me think, maybe we should start a sewing commune. <laughs> yeah, how can any piece of literature that has Rachmetsov in it, could that, how could that be interesting? Just, how could any piece of literature where a character eats five pounds of ham, and that's not even a big thing, that's just like a casual introductory piece? That is, there is more on the sewing commune than how he physically is able to digest that much meat. <laughs> I think people don't understand the humor, and I'm going to be honest, I'm not sure that Chernyshevsky intended it to be funny, but boy, it really was. <laughs> yeah. Um, but before we carry on too much about uh, what is to be done, uh, I got to ask you, Matt, what are you drinking today? I am drinking vodka and Trader Joe's lemonade from my fridge because I am moving soon and I need mm. to finish things that so I don't have to move them. And that's a really convenient excuse that I can tell myself. <laughs> well, you know, it's kind of on brand. I think at some point uh, I want to say uh, Kremoff mm-hmm. drinks uh, beetroot uh, moonshine. Mm-hmm. So kind of kind of like that. Kind you of on gotta brand. You got to make do with what you got. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What, what are you drinking? I'm sure it's leaps and bounds better. <laughs> so I have from High Water Brewing, which is... A, a I guess it's not technically local it's from it's from Lodi which is north from where I live uh but I have a campfire stout which is a stout with graham crackers molasses and other natural flavors uh which is uh I'm happy it cooled down today it was very hot earlier uh this would not be good in hot weather however for like yeah nice moderate 80 pretty good I'm I'm into it I'm I'm happy one of us brought a real drink it's nice that you prepared for the podcast. It's like, what are, what are we drinking tonight? Just throw it in. That will make the podcast. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's our balance. It's it's the balance. Yes. Liquor on one hand, beer on the mm-hmm. other. Mm-hmm. You know what they say, liquor before beer, never a better podcast. <laughs> they do say that. It's actually on our website now. It's a shirt you can buy. <laughs> That's how I hold myself accountable. Is I say, say things on the podcast and then I have to do mm. them. Yeah, that's fair. Okay, so for today's context, we're going to be continuing on to the second half of the war for uh, Grossman, as you'll hear from us again soon. Alexander Popov's book, um, Vasily Grossman and uh, the Soviet Century, as well as some supplemental readings from Luba Vinogradova and Anthony Bivor's uh, book, Vasily Grossman, A Writer at War, uh, which is a collection of his writings along with their uh, commentary as historians on that and bringing in some secondary sources from other contemporaries of Grossman's. Both of them are highly recommended books, and I will be including them in the show notes. Speaking of books, before we get into the actual context, let's continue on to our book recommendation of the day. This one's going to be a little bit different. It's the book Between Tears and Laughter by Lin Yutang. So Lin Yutang was a Chinese intellectual who at this time was living in the United States during World War II. Uh, Between Tears and Laughter is written, I want to say, in 1943, but it is, um, I don't know the exact year, but it's written during the war. And so he's uh, an interesting figure. He's the the son of a Chinese Presbyterian minister, uh, was educated for the ministry, but eventually would uh, would renounce Christianity and become a professor of English, uh, traveling around uh, to the United States and around Europe. Um, so he's got an interesting perspective on on matters, having uh, someone who is educated in the West but has a profound interest in exploring uh, in exploring his own background. Uh, I want to say. One of his books actually is sitting in myself right now, which I've been meaning to get to for a long time, Moment in Peking, which uh, I think the 
tells a, a story set in Beijing in the in the very early 20th century, uh, but it's also quite a large book, so I haven't had the time to get to it just yet. But Between Tears and Laughter, it's a, essentially a commentary. It's a large opinion piece, really, um, covering a large number of topics. Um, you have to remember when this is being written, uh, the war is still very much, uh, the outcome of the war is still very much in contention. So seeing him write about these figures and the morality of it and the morality of not just, you know, figures like Stalin, but also figures like Churchill, who uh, Lin Yutang absolutely hates because of uh, Churchill's continual denial of material support to uh, Chinese guerrilla forces fighting the Japanese army. Um, and the way that especially British politics have, uh, in a way, made the war much worse for for china but now it's not just that not just a commentary but it's also him uh, philosophizing a bit of how do we for example return to a a better what will chinese society be like after the war how do we return to a better society uh he called it calls for return to a society by music and many other things it's really interesting uh to see his perspective on a lot of matters um and he's very critical of domestic policy in the u.s foreign policy on the u.s and britain and it's it's a really fascinating book definitely not a perspective you hear often or frankly even ever uh in mainstream conversations about the war uh, and i think one of the um uh, there's a line in it that actually has been stuck with me ever since. Uh, there's like there's certain lines from books which just stick with me forever, and this is one of them. I am no longer angry. Only the stupidity of it all is a little boring. Um, which, yeah, as a younger person, it resonated and still sticks with me sometimes. Um, so that's it. Between Tears and Laughter, you can find it in the list, which is going to be in the show notes. As per usual, the uh, list is a little bit too long to be actually included in the show notes, but there's a link to the full list, which has all the book recommendations we've talked about previously, uh, as well as other ones. And if you'd like to contribute more, you can, of course, email them to tipsytolstoy at gmail.com. Okay, so let's talk about the second half of World War II, and this is going to overlap a little bit. We're going to start in 1942, which overlaps a little bit with uh, what we were talking about last time at the end of the, the fight in Stalingrad. Now, this is going to focus a lot, especially on what it meant to be Jewish on the Eastern Front during the war. Uh, for a, a sense of context, about 5 million Jews lived in the Soviet Union before uh, Hitler attacked in 1941. Approximately half of this number were killed during the German occupation. Um, and by 1941, uh, Soviet newspapers were already publishing reports about massacres of Soviet Jews specifically. And by the end of 1942, uh, roughly where we're starting, Pravda and Izvestia had already carried their first commentaries on the so-called Final Solution. So Grossman at this time would have already been aware of the uh, Nazi war machine's specific plans regarding, uh, regarding Jewish people. Uh, but he discovered much more about the particulars and uh, the extent of the, this Nazi barbarism as, uh, you know, 42, especially 43 onward, Soviet troops began to push the, the Wehrmacht back and began to return to prior Soviet territories or um, other Eastern European nations, uh, Poland, etc. Especially once we get to Poland, it's going to be something we'll focus on much more later. So by late 1942, when, when Grossman's visiting Luhansk, in, um, which of course is modern-day Ukraine, he heard about the, the thousands of Jews there who were killed by, by, um, by the so-called Einsatzgruppen, uh, who carried out the, the Holocaust by, by gun and, and by gas. Um, and he writes, I often dream of Mama, but during this trip, I dreamt of her the whole night and saw her as vividly as if she were alive. After that, I was in a horrible state all day. No, I don't believe she is alive. I travel the entire time through the regions that have been liberated from the Germans and see what these damned beasts were doing to old people and children. And Mama was Jewish. I feel a strong desire to exchange my pen for a rifle. But of course, Grossman would not, although tempted, 
actually turn to the rifle and, uh, in fact, use his pen to write some of the very first fiction written about the Holocaust as they pushed East during the war. It should be noted at the same time, uh, although as he was finding out about this official Semitism, or official, excuse me, anti-Semitism was on the rise in the Soviet Union. Um, an important one to come, and of what was to come, uh, Grossman's editor actually quit in 1943 after being told that there were too many Jews among his correspondents and, and asked to dismiss some of them. Uh, he chose instead to tell them, well, you'll have one Jew less and quit himself. Now, uh, other correspondents during the war were also would be openly anti-Semitic to to uh, Jewish correspondents. For example, the author of Quiet Flows the Dawn, Mikhail Shalakhov, uh, who was a fairly rabid anti-Semite, would insult a contemporary of of Grossman's, uh, Ilya Ehrenberg, um, on the basis of of his Jewishness. Uh, in a conversation, um, Shalakhov would. When they discussed, were discussing the war, made a remark about Abraham being in Tashkent making uh, making a uh, making a profit. Uh, you know, the idea being that somehow, in the war started by in by Nazi Germany, it is somehow the Jewish people who are materially benefiting. Um, so Ehrenberg would tell Grossman about this, and, and Grossman would write back, um, just. Uh, if if this was ever if something of this magnitude was written about me, I think I'd just crawl under a rock and never come out. I think about Shalakhov's anti-Semitic slander with pain and contempt. Here on the southwestern front, there are thousands, tens of thousands of Jews. They are walking with machine guns into the snowstorms, breaking into towns held by the Germans, falling in battle. I saw all of this. If Shalakhov is in Koibyshev, be sure to let him know that comrades at the front know what he is saying. Let him be ashamed. It's also important to note here that out of about 450,000 Jews who served in the Soviet army, roughly 40% of them were killed. So at the same time that we have both the the Nazi barbarism pushing in from uh, pushing in from the West, we also have the the this current of anti-Semitism, which would of course um, continue on throughout the war and come to a much greater uh, much greater stead after the war too. You know, keep in mind the when Stalin dies, uh, they're in the midst of um, accusing a group of Jewish doctors of trying to kill him and demanding that Jewish. Um, uh, uh, Con, uh, intellectual sign letters uh, condemning them and, and calling for their execution, um, but that isn't a main feature yet. So continuing on to, to 1943, um, let's let's go with uh, let's start talking about uh, Operation Citadel. Now Operation Citadel happens outside of Kursk. It's one of the largest tank battles that's ever taken place in the. Well, I, actually, uh, let me check the show notes, and I'm going to double check that is if it's the largest tank battle that's ever taken place. But it is absolutely one of the largest ones. Um, and at this point, Soviet wartime production now outproduces uh, Germany's ability to produce uh, especially tanks, motorized vehicles as a whole. And Grossman would note at this time that this new generation of Soviet command with two years of war under their belt had learned from the costly mistakes of the early war. Um, And uh, Ortenberg, Grossman's editor, of course talks about Grossman, uh, his experience on the front lines, and he writes, Grossman saw the battlefield with his own eyes. He saw destroyed enemy armor and our burning tanks and self-propelled guns. He saw our troops attack and retreat. He also saw the wounded and dead Soviet soldiers, and he believed it was dishonorable to remain silent about this. Grossman would write about, uh, would, would condemn commanders who were insufficiently in, uh, interested in their soldiers, writing uh, in July of 1943, There are many commanders who don't compare, care about their soldiers' food in everyday life. They don't try to study the soldier's soul. Commanders are sometimes very harsh, but during breaks in the fighting, they don't go to their men, talk to them, and ask questions. Often this is because the commanders are too young. It is sometimes the case that a junior officer has soldiers who have sons older than he is. Later writing to, 
cry of forward, forward is either the result of stupidity or fear of one's seniors. That's why so much blood is being shed. It's also important to note here that um, this is a changing war. Uh, and uh, outside of Kursk, um, it was it's it's different. Uh, Stalingrad, of course, is a you know a battle of street to street. It was a battle of uh, submachine gunners and um, storming attacks and snipers of you know person to person combat. But in Kursk, uh, it was this is a tank battle, and it's not just of tanks against tanks; it's of artillery against tanks, and the sword of the artillery crushing uh, the tanks before the counterattack of Soviet tanks have even begun. Um, it's much more sophisticated, I guess, in, in broader in broader terms, it in, incorporates a much greater uh, military technology rather than um, you know soldier to soldier, gun to gun, which is just a technological, essentially rock fight. And the the Soviet army continues pushing west, um, recapturing areas that Grossman remember retreating from early in the war. Upon the recapture of the city of Oral, Grossman would write, which of course I should also note, Grossman retreated from um, in uh, 1941. I remember the oral which I had seen exactly 22 months ago, on that October day of 1941, when German tanks broke into it from the Kromsk Highway. I remembered my last night oral, the ill, terrible night, the humming of fleeing vehicles, the weeping of women running after the retreating troops, the sorrowful faces of people, and the questions that they were asking me, full of anxiety and suffering. I remembered Oral's last morning, when it seemed as if the whole city was then still in its full beauty, without a single window broken but it gave the impression of being doomed and having been sentenced to death. Later, when listening to the speech of a tank colonel, he would, uh, he would further write, um, This colonel, who was standing on top of a dusty tank overlooking the bodies of soldiers and officers killed in the battle for Oral, hearing his simple, abrupt words of goodbye echoing in the burnt-out houses, I understood. This meeting today and that bitter parting on the October morning of 1941 are inseparably linked with one another. Now, at the same time, at uh, Ilya Ehrenberg's urging, Grossman would join the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee, uh, which was a group of, of Jewish intellectuals who would fight fascism in, in, in various forms, uh, usually by uh, usually by way of pen. And at this time, uh, um, uh, members of the American Committee of Jewish Writers, Artists, and Scientists uh, reached out to the JAC in order to ask them to assemble records of Nazi crimes. Um, you know, and looming in the shadow of uh, anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union, the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee was more than happy to accept it. Uh, and in 1943, Ehrenberg would ask Grossman to join the journalists working on their project, which would eventually become known as the complete black book of Russian Jewry, although that would be um, that would not be actually be published in the, the USSR. And we'll talk more about that later. In 1943, now we're moving far into Ukraine. Um, in, in, in November of 1943, the Red Army would take Kiev back from the Nazis. Uh, and the foreign press was brought to Babi Yar. And Babi Yar, of course, is the site of um, some of the largest executions, um, not in the camps. Uh, Babi Yar was uh, the MX execution site of likely over 100,000 people, uh, the greatest slaughter taking place on September 29th and 30th in 1941 on the eve of Yom Kippur, uh, which at that time, 3,771 Jews were executed in the deep ravines on the city outskirts. Traveling across Ukraine, Grossman would hear everywhere about similar events, about the mass execution of, of Jews, and he would write and submit to uh, an article Znamia, or to Znamia called Ukraine Without Jews, uh, although the actual story was uh, would eventually be suppressed by censors. It would be published in Yiddish in the Jewish Anti-Fascist Committee's newspapers. Um, and he would write, um, I'm going to read a couple lines from it. Jews are silent across Ukraine. None are left in Ukraine. 
nowhere in Poltava and Kharkov and Kremenchuk and Borispol and Yagotin, in none of the cities, hundreds of towns and thousands of villages will you see a young girl's black tear-filled eyes, hear the sorrowful voice of an old woman, see the swarthy-skinned little face of a hungry child. Silence. Stillness. An entire people murdered. And as he wrote this article, in typical Grossman fashion, he would focus on the humanity of each person. All having been murdered, many hundreds of thousands, a million Jews in Ukraine. This is not the death of armed people during the war, of people who left behind a home, a family, a field, songs, traditions, stories. This is the murder of a people, murder of a house, of a family, of books, of faith. This is the murder of the tree of life. This is the death of roots, not of branches and leaves. This is the murder of a people's soul and body, murder of a great skillful experience created generation after generation by thousands of clever and talented craftsmen and intellectuals. This is the murder of a people's morality, of customs, humorous stories passed on from grandfathers to their sons. This is the murder of memories, of a sad song, of a people's poetry about a merry and bitter life. This is the destruction of a hearth, of cemeteries. This is the death of a people which lived for centuries beside the Ukrainian people, worked, sinned, and did good deeds, and was dying on the same land. Our grandfathers lived here. Our mothers have given birth to us here. The mothers of our sons were born here. So much sweat and tears were shed, it seems. Only few could refer to a Jew as a stranger and say that this land was not his land. This war, as Alexander Popoff writes, tested Grossman's beliefs as a humanist, as a pacifist, and as an internationalist. At the same time, he perceived the war as a battle between internationalism and fascism. Ehrenberg would recall a conversation they had in Moscow when Grossman was on furlough. We sat until three in the morning. He talked about the front, and we were guessing what life would be like after the war. Grossman said, I now doubt many things. What I don't doubt is victory. Perhaps this matters most. So I mentioned before the complete black book of Russian Jewry, which was uh, the project that the JAC uh, put together in order to create a, a record of Nazi crimes. And although the Kremlin sword showed support for the project abroad and publicly, at home they showed limited enthusiasm, and it would, uh, would be later banned in the 1940s. Continuing on to the next year, uh, Berdachev, which is, of course, where Grossman was born, was uh, liberated by the Red Army on January 5th in 1944, and, and Grossman would uh, immediately begin to search for any, any relatives who may have survived. And he writes his wife, My dear Lyusenka, yesterday I was in Kiev. It's hard to convey what I experienced in the few hours visiting the addresses of relatives and acquaintances. There are only graves in death. Today I'm going to Berdachev. My comrades have already been out there. They say that the city is completely destroyed, empty, and that of many thousands, tens of thousands of Jews who have lived there, only a few, perhaps ten people, have survived. I have no hope of finding Mama alive. The only thing I'm hoping for is to learn something about her last days and death. We know until the end of his life, Grossman would carry around two letters that he had written to his mother um, about her death, both of them written long after the events. Um, with them are two photos which have... Um, by the those the documentarians have never been included in any reproductions of the letters as as um I think it's it's Chandler who notes in the book The Road that although they republish the letters that Grossman carries around to his mother, um, it seems that the the photos and the one of the photos which he carried with uh, one of the um, letters of his mother uh, was a mass grave of many Jewish people who had been killed in a ravine um, and was 
very likely uh, among 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 that um, the bodies was of his own mother, although it's un, it was impossible to tell who exactly it was. Um, probably something that was given Grossman's tendency to never reduce people to a mere to to merely the moment of their death, but to focus on the moment of their life. Probably would not have wanted people to see that. Uh, that's a very private thing, just to reflect on his own um, guilt and uh, grief over the death of his mother. So in 1944, uh, as the the Red Army continues to push push west, um, Odessa being liberated in April, uh, um, Grossman would learn more uh, about the Warsaw Ghetto uprising and about the Treblinka extermination camp and about the many other camps as they as they went further west. Although you know, Popoff notes that uh, Grossman struggled with his. In, like, intense desire to maintain a sort of even-handedness or a sense of humanity about everyone involved in the war. It, it was a struggle, but it's something he continued to write about. Um, Popoff writes, Grossman's main message, however, that the war failed to destroy humanity in people and that Nazism, the world's greatest evil, contains the seeds of its own destruction. He describes an incident that bolstered his faith in humanity's goodwill. A wounded German soldier is sitting by the roadside near Bobrusk, watching Soviet tanks and artillery stream into the burning city. A Red Army soldier approaches him and gives him some water. Moved by this, Grossman tells this story to remind the Red Army, soon to enter Germany, about an old tradition to take pity on the weak. In contrast, Ehrenberg, in his columns, expressed hatred of Germany and called for revenge, referring to the German people as a colossal gang. Grossman, and this is something to specifically note, uh, because as Grossman is writing specifically on the camps, it's um, interesting to see the terminology he'll use, especially, and we'll talk about that in a moment, um, especially once we enter July of 1944, when the Red Army enters Majdanek, which is one of the six killing centers that were in Poland, liberated by the Red Army. Uh, unlike other camps, the SS did not have time to destroy the evidence of what happened in that camp, uh, allowing the Soviets to film it. Uh, it. It should be noted here that in most camps, late in the war, uh, based on Heinrich Himmler's orders, most camps were, and this is where, where the introduction of... of uh, mass crematoriums uh, were in these camps to get rid of the bodies, which by and large had already been killed by gas and buried uh, in, in, in these camps to destroy the evidence of what had happened. Of course, in, in Majdanek, there was not time for this, and Grossman would enter along with many other correspondents. Uh, writing of this time, we have um, Yevgeny Dolmatovsky, who had, uh, wrote about his time with Grossman, and especially his time with Grossman in, in Treblinka. In one interview of a, of a guard of the camp, um, Dolmatovsky recalls this interaction. How many people did you gas each day? 900, I think. As an aside, the author notes, the word people is not used. And then after pause, up to 2,000. How did you spend your time afterwards? We sang songs. What songs, for example? O Tannenbaum, O Tannenbaum. And although Grossman's article about Treblinka makes no mention of the song in Life and Fate, German soldiers do sing O Tannenbaum in Stalingrad as they unwrap Christmas gifts. Well, in this particular interrogation, uh, Domotovsky writes that Vasily Semyonovich literally jumped out of the bunker. I followed him. He stood in the cold wind and tears were pouring from underneath his glasses. Later he told me that it's because of the strong wind. He regained his composure, buttoned his greatcoat, and returned to the bunker where the interrogation was taking place. As a side note, uh, Domotovsky also recalls meeting Grossman early in the war, and in 1942 near Stalingrad, uh, Grossman actually would rescue Domotovsky during a bombardment. Uh, finding him wounded in a house, Grossman carried him on his back to a field hospital. And to Domotovsky's surprise, Grossman appears to have never mentioned this episode to anyone else. After visiting Treblinka, Grossman would write a remarkable story of, of it uh, called 
the hell of Treblinka, um, and it's a story pulled together from as many people as he could think t- uh, as he could as he could find to talk to. He spoke with a captured Ukrainian guard identified in his notebook as Ivan Shevchenko, who had served with the SS of, as a volunteer auxiliary. His notebook contains drawings of the death camp's layout, of the railway station, the road, the six-meter wall surrounding the camp, the uniform rectangles of the barracks, and the facilities for the Germans, including a bakery and a barber shop. He recorded the hymn the SS men composed that Treblinka's laborers were forced to sing before execution. The Hell of Treblinka is a difficult read. Uh, I've talked about it previously on this podcast. If you can, I would recommend you do so. I would recommend you, if you can find something online, you, you should, if possible, read one that has commentary by historians, as the Hell of Treblinka does contain some major factual errors, um, which is not, as far as we can tell, of maliciousness on Grissom's part, but of simple misunderstanding or uh, an eyewitness testimony failing um, to uh, give correct information. Uh, for example, uh, Grossman estimates that Treblinka was the largest death camp, which was, if his math had, if his math is actually correct, um, and if all his information were correct, would have been true. Uh, however, what where he fails is that he believed the people told him that trains arrived every day, whereas in fact we know in some periods of the war trains in fact did in fact arrive every day, but in other periods maybe only one train would arrive per week. Um, so that variance actually created uh, was was why uh, the actual number of people killed in Treblinka was much lower than the three three million Grossman estimates in the story. So reasons like that are a good reason to read one of them a historian's commentary to correct small errors like that. Um, although not that that's a small error, but, you know, uh, an error that does not f- fundamentally alter what tr- the hell of Treblinka means, uh, but just correcting numbers. In in the story collection, The Road, uh, collected by Robert Chandler, uh, it, it does include commentary from a historian as well. So that was a, a good resource to use. Um, I'm going to read two lines from Treblinka. This commentary has gone a little long already, but um, it's a difficult read and a worthwhile read. And I think this this line will tell you why you should. The beasts and the beast philosophy seemed to portend the sunset of Europe, the sunset of the world, but the red was not the red of the sunset. It was the red blood of humanity, a humanity that was dying yet achieving victory through its death. People remained people. They did not accept the morality and laws of fascism. It is the writer's duty to tell the horrible truth, and it is the reader's civic duty to learn this truth. To turn away, to close one's eyes, and walk past is to insult the memory of those who perished. Um, it's notable here that uh, Grossman, who was adamant always about retaining people, their humanity, uh, the hell of Treblinka is entirely about the humanity of the people in the camps, never allowing them to be reduced to what the Nazis had wanted them to be reduced to, uh, except for those true adherents of, uh, of Nazism who are merely the beasts, and only ever the beasts. Throughout the rest of the war, Grossman would continue to learn more about these crimes and would write about them, uh, often as articles with too many specificities being uh, censored or suppressed. Towards the end of the war, uh, Grossman would, would be there to witness the Battle of Berlin, which contained some of the cruelest and bloodiest fighting of the war. And on the final day uh, of, the, of, the, of the Red Army victory in, in Berlin, uh, Alexander Beck recalls standing on the roof of the Reichstag next to Grossman. They saw columns of POWs, the city of smoke, and in the square below, Soviet tanks and field kitchens. Grossman was silent, his usual reserved self. Then he said the words that became memorable to Beck. Evil is overthrown. And for now, uh, let's leave uh, the context for today there and continue on with the, the story itself. So let's talk about part four of Stalingrad. So we open up chapter 53, going back to a 
bird's eye perspective as Grossman talks about the war and what it was and what as he says, uh, Nazi Germany did not understand they were fighting, which is uh, they were fighting a people's war. As he goes through the disaster of the early war for the Soviet Union, uh, he then transitions into talking about how much uh, Soviet industry, once it was functional, made them ready for war, and which is why he calls it the people's war, because it was the people creating the industry under fire, essentially, which made the Soviet Union ready for war in the in the later years which is a, a industry is something that we're going to be talking about a fair amount in this part um and grossman writes on the subject if this vast amount of work has to many seemed insignificant it is because it is the vastest things that most often escape our notice uh, but all the same uh, as we kind of go back to the era of 1942 not from the kind of future perspective at this time the wehrmacht has deployed 240 divisions which comp uh, is comprised of more than 3 million men against the red army and although in the winter of 1941 the germans were essentially routed outside of moscow they are back on the offensive and they are pushing the red army back so as the as the the wehrmacht is pushing uh, the red army back we're going towards stalingrad although of course it hasn't gotten there yet and it's we return to the shaposhnikova family uh, for whom uh, the war infects everything. Grossman writes, it was impossible to get away from the war. If the Shaposhnikovs tried to talk about Victor's work, this at once led them to think of his mother. If they mentioned Ludmila, the conversation would soon turn to Tolia. Was he, or wasn't he, still alive? Grief was lurking outside, ready to fling open every door of the house. Can we talk about the, this particular chapter has a, a great example of those lines that are very Grossman-esque when... Sure. He's describing the relationship between Sofia Marussia and her daughter Vera and how Vera returns home and she's, you know, kind of very cross with everybody. And Sofia <laughs> criticizes her to Marussia and he says that, <laughs> yeah. but Marussia reserved for herself the right to complain about her daughter saying that she, you know, against Sofia then immediately takes Vera's side. I just thought in in the midst of the as he does in the midst of the the bird's eye view to bring it back down to what is essentially a very uh, global phenomenon that, that feels hyper-specific to these set of people. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the, the family dynamics are in full swing, which also I think later on, um, was it, is it Genia? Genia, when, Genia will eventually later on get into an argument with, with Vera, um, and it will, Genia will note that although people often think that kind of Vera took this a sudden temper from her father's side, from uh, Stepan Spiridonov's side, it's actually Marussia who has that temper, um, which, again, is not just said, but <laughs> shown. And it's just Marussia arguing with her daughter, but the moment that Sofia Asipovna, you know, in, in trying to support Marussia um, by by saying, by sympathizing with her over Vera being difficult, like you say, mm -hmm. <laughs> Marussia immediately <laughs> switches, because only she gets to complain about her daughter. <laughs> Speaking of Genia, how hot is genuine we need to have a separate counter for the way that grossman sure. weaves in like any time she's mentioned <laughs> by any character their their in, their internal monologue is always ah yes this beautiful you know i think this beautiful aunt or this beautiful whoever whatever relation mm -hmm. she is to the person that this you know other character is talking about it's like almost 100 percent of the time the narrator has to break in to remind you of that <laughs> yeah I started noticing it on this part, and I thought it was hilarious. It's actually funny you started noticing that, because um, I, now now that I've been reading more, maybe this is because I've been recovering from 
Murakami's prose, and I'll explain that a little bit later. Uh, but I started to notice the way that uh, Grossman talks about women's bodies in this a little bit more, and we'll talk about that a little more later. But yeah, there, <laughs> there, there was a few scenes. Yeah, Genya, um, I don't she, I don't think she gets such a specific treatment as some women in this book, too. Uh, but no. yeah, you, you're right. Although, funnily enough, Vera's friend, Zena, who we'll talk about later, is the only one who's like, well, Genya could be beautiful. She did, you know, stop dressing as she does and did her hair or whatever else yeah. Uh, yeah. Vera's friend says she needs to do, which is funny bit as we established in our crime and punishment series the ultimate top tier of hot 10 out of 10 is raskolnikov apparently so mm-hmm. um on a scale of one to raskolnikov <laughs> where, where is she <laughs> a close second apparently mm-hmm. <laughs> apparently so uh so speaking of genya uh, as we enter the house genya is thinking about novikov novikov of course has not been around since the last time he showed up in the middle of the night and this leads her to think of him and thinking of novikov leads her to think of her prior husband uh, Krimov and she's wondering kind of not not she's not wondering why she left him she's wondering why she stopped loving him it's written why had she stopped loving him was it he who had changed or her had she come to understand him better or was it that she no longer understood him this was a great scene yeah oh it's it's such I, I love the way that her, her emotions are portrayed um she obviously still has like through the scene still cares for for um Kremov, but as she said, it's a very pitying love. In mm-hmm. at this point in time, Kremov is losing prestige, or at least when she left him. Um, and he seems to think that that's the reason that their marriage is failing. And he even jokes about her uh, seeing him in the future when she's married to someone much more, you know, much more high status. Uh, but she reasserts that, that really wasn't the reason, and, and she can't even think of it. It was just, well, she doesn't know. But it certainly wasn't that. It wasn't for the material reasons that Kremov assumed, and maybe others do as well. Mm-hmm. So like we mentioned, Vera gets into a fight with Genya. In this case, it's actually Vera has come back after her day at the hospital. Uh, Genya asks for some help, and Vera just pretty much blows up at her um, and, and storms off. And at this point, you have um, uh, um, this, this interaction between Marussia and Sofia Asipovna and Genya thinking about Vera's temper and how she gets from Marussia. And, and suddenly, uh, Novikov arrives and asks Vera to go for a walk. And they they go out, and this whole time when they're walking, Genya is really worried that he's going to confess his love for her because she feels this sense of something hanging over them. But the whole time they're walking, uh, he just keeps talking about work the whole time. And she actually gets kind of angry at this, uh, that, like, not exactly, she's not exactly sure at what, at, at what but uh, she kind of speaks on the absence of, she eventually breaks in and speaks on the absence of love in the modern era, uh, conveying the story of... Um, Tristan and Isolde being a, an older kind of fairy tale about two star-crossed lovers, Isolde um, versus Tristan. I honestly don't remember. Who, I think it's Tristan. Tristan's a knight leaves behind. Is it Tristan? One of them One of them is nobility. One of them is just like a kind of a common person, and they give everything up to go live in the woods. So at this point, we, we follow, go back to Vera's perspective. And when, when Vera stormed out of that conversation with Genya, uh, she went to go see her friend Zina Melikovna's. Uh, uh, place and, and Zina is not much older than Vera. She's only about twenty-one, but she's been married for the last two years. And in her two years of marriage, she's traveled quite a bit. So to Genya, uh, excuse me, to Vera, Zina seems quite worldly and traveled. And um, Grossman writes on this kind of relationship between an interesting passage about how some people can understand each other and, and despise each other, and how other people can not understand each other but have a sense of familiarity that people who understand each other don't uh writing zina melikovna may not have understood vera but she understood very well how vera imagined her and she took care to show vera the particular qualities the freedom from calculation and convention that she knew vera most wanted to see in her 
And so Xena is giving Vera lots of advice on this. And at this point, we find out that not exactly, not one-to-one, but part of the reason for Vera's mood in the day is that uh, the, the the pilot, the young pilot, Viktorov, who she's kind of fallen in love with, suddenly left the hospital and was being redeployed back to the front lines. And Vera has this kind of romantic notion that she'll find him after being shot down and take him to a cabin in the woods and, you know, be able to stitch him up and they'll have some sort of great romance but she's equally certain that he's just going to die out there in xena in response to this again knowing how vera sees her better than she actually frankly understands vera it tells her story of a german officer who falls in love with a, a young russian woman uh and the german officer after spending time with her goes and turns himself into his to his superiors and um is shot as a spy for refusing to give up her name which Vera considers to be a great romantic story, um, and goes back home to tell it to to, to Genya uh, and Sofia Asipovna and Novikov. Um, at this point, Genya kind of uh, kind of explodes at at Vera. Not exactly, but she she calls the tale that uh, Vera has told them contemptible for the times they're in. They all argue again. Sofia Asipovna tries <laughs> to again. The whole family really. It's kind, of, it's kind of rough on Sofia, actually. Uh, Sofia Asipovna kind of supports Zhenya, but at the same time, Zhenya turns on Sofia Asipovna and tells her, any simple Russian heart can understand this. And, and Sofia Asipovna says, well, okay, so any Russian heart can understand it. Well, I guess my, you know, I guess my Jewish heart doesn't understand what you're trying to say and storms off. And Zhenya is just like, that's that's even a sideswipe for Zhenya. So this whole family has a bit of a, at least uh, Marussia and Zhenya have kind of a temper and they kind of swipe out. <laughs> and she's even a little confused why Sofia Asipovna is mad, which is um, interesting that this is Zhenya's uh, reaction to that tale, considering that she has recently told Novikov the story of Tristan and Isolde, which I believe is a, a German in origin. And at the end of that scene, Novikov says, oh, this whole conversation has reminded me, I meant to tell you, I'm going to Moscow soon. <laughs> so as an aside, uh, we, we join Mostovsky's point of view. And as you recall, Mostovsky is a, a friend of Alexandra Shaposhnikova's. Uh, he's an old Bolshevik. He's quite the prolific writer. Uh, and he's fr- visited by a friend of his and they discuss. Uh, and his friend gives him a letter and says, oh, I met this uh, an old acquaintance of mine, Ivonikov. And uh, he managed to get a letter from this woman and was asked to bring it to the, to the Shaposhnikovs. So here it is. Moskovsky says, okay, yeah, I'll bring it to the Shaposhnikovs. We switch over from here, uh, from a relatively short scene, back to Viktor Strum. Strum, who is, of course, in Moscow, uh, who has been invited there for to work on some, some projects, he is going to see Pastayev in his hotel room, but walks in on a meeting of the heads of the Soviet seal industry at this point. Um, and we go on to an extended scene where each of the individual characters of these of these men plays out in their arguments, in the way they're united, in the way they're different, in the way that some are, you know, even by others are criticized as being too driving and others are criticized as too lenient not meeting enough quotas etc it's an interesting dynamic and one of them at the end uh, approaches victor and says oh are, are you victor strum and, and victor says yeah who are you and and um the guy says oh i'm semyon and semyon of course is Krimov's older brother who Krimov has not seen in some amount of time because he's the he's leading a, a steel production facility in in chelyabinsk the two discuss a little bit, and they kind of pledge to talk more later. At the same time, as as Victor has been in Moscow for um, not a super long time, um, less than a month, but still, you know, not an insignificant amount of time, recall that uh, a young woman named Nina moved into his neighbor's apartment to stay there for a short period of time, and uh, Victor has been spending a lot of time with her, going out for walks in the evening, discussing. It's noted that he pays very close attention to all of her stories. And on her last night in the city... Victor and uh, Nina share some wine, uh, and then he 
as they're kind of disgusting, he begins to kiss her hand, which by the way, Victor, not, this has been like maybe a week. He's like jumping at the, at the chance to cheat on his wife. This is, this is like very, I know like day one, it was already happening, but yeah, it it took this man no time. (laughs) Well, so as, as he begins kissing her hand, there's a knock on the door and and Victor goes over and opens up and it's Novikov who was recently redeployed to Moscow, uh, who enters to bring tidings from the rest of the family. And at this point is like, oh yeah, I forgot. I've got my friend coming by so we can go catch the train. Bye. This man got absolutely cucked by the labyrinth of plots. (laughs) Like, horrifically. (laughs) Did he deserve it? Probably. But still. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, for Victor, although he does not get to cheat on his wife in this particular moment in time, uh, he does end up really enjoying his conversation with Novikov and the two find that they're actually quite similar despite coming from very different walks of life. And Victor thinks on later, I'm really happy that Novikov came by. I do wish he'd come by about 30 minutes later, <laughs> is his exact thoughts of the matter. At this point, uh, Victor goes out to, well, uh, about a day later, he goes out to the dacha outside of Moscow to, re- to retrieve some things that uh, Ludmila has asked him to get. And on the way there, he's kind of thinking through a, a jumble of emotions. Um, and he notes to himself that it always seems so easy to explain other people's behavior to Tolia and Nadia, his children, uh, but his own feelings now seemed beyond understanding. And he kind of is thinking about his relationship with Ludmilla, and they've been married for so many years, um, and, and he's had ups and downs, and every time they have uh, a conflict, he's been noting it down, someone like an accountant, uh, and is now trying to indict Ludmilla in his own mind, although um, he also tells himself that this is unfair and untrue. But then goes on to say, well, what does it matter if it's untrue, too? Um, and he arrives at the dacha and finds that it's in a bit of a mess. People have obviously been living there, but it doesn't bother him too much. Uh, now it means he doesn't have to go get all the stuff that Ludmilla asked him to get if it's, well, if it's been taken. And goes inside to get some stuff. And while he's getting stuff, he remembers that Novikov had given him a little a small package, uh, which was the package that... Ivanikov had given to Mostovsky's friend that Mostovsky had given to the Shaposhnikovs, who then gave it to Novikov, and now is in the presence of, uh, in in the hands of Victor, who opens it up and realizes that it's a letter from his mother, uh, and essentially her writing a goodbye letter to him before she's killed. It's it's I think it's written from when she's slightly before, slightly after she's been put um, into the the Nazi created ghetto for Jewish people in the town she's in, which, of course, the, the ghettos would go on to be primarily eliminated by, by so-called Einsatzgruppen, by um, squads with either firearms or uh, gas bands. The next couple of chapters are him kind of wandering throughout, well, the next couple of days, really unsure of things, before getting back into the swing of things. Sort of, still kind of distant, and in the middle of the night, he gets a call from Simeon asking for the help of one of his assistants and he says, basically, you know, I'll go. I, everyone is in Kazan. They're not close enough. I will come. And, and also in the middle of that, he's an air raid is happening and he decides just to stay above ground. So not explicitly suicidal, but kind of getting there. Um, and he goes to Chelyabinsk. We go from here over back to Krimov, uh, who at this point has been reassigned as, as the uh, French is being pushed back towards Stalingrad. He's been reassigned to a mortar unit led by Lieutenant Sarkisian, and he re- witnesses a lot of conflict among the Red Army at this point. Of course, they're all retreating. Uh, Krimov is trying to get gas for uh, Lieutenant Sarkisian, who has been unable to get it. And without that, they can't retreat. Uh, he's going to different command centers. Uh, he's v- seeing a lot of actually luxury here, and all the officers who are <laughs> kind of arguing over you know, where their barber is and all this other stuff. And he's almost in disbelief that they're retreating and, and yet all the same uh, these officers are 
trying to figure out where if whether or not their sum of R has been dented in the retreat. And in, this goes all the way up to the general who's trying to get gas from. And when he actually insults the general, uh, and the general for a moment kind of turns to him, and it seems like he's not going to give him the gas. And the guy says, call up the lieutenant overseeing the gas and make him give it to Lieutenant Sarkisian, and I'll have him shot if he doesn't give uh, the man everything he needs. Um, and then he kind of compliments um, Krimov uh, and says, from one angry man to another, you'll have what you need. Angry man getting stuff done, I guess. Yes. And we follow another couple chapters with Sarkisian trying to get this guy. A lot of this part is truly Sarkisian getting gas. Um, at, while Krimov is waiting, he stays with a peasant village um, who have just been abandoned by the Red Army. And he stays in the house of some people who are actually really happy that the Red Army are treating. They have not done super well under the Soviet system and think back to the prior years. Um, Krimov is later invited by their daughter-in-law, who is well, now a widow after her her husband was killed, to a party of many other peasants in the village. And um, the daughter-in-law um, and Krimov end up sleeping in the barn together. And she kind of says, hey, you should stay. And he says, and he thinks for a moment and thinks, this would be happy to stay with her. This would be happiness. And then says, this is happiness, but it's not my happiness. And uh, leaves with Lieutenant Sarkisian in the mortar unit. After leaving with Lieutenant Sarkisian, uh, Krimov also visits an old comrade of his once they cross the Don or the Volga, or the once they cross the Don again, and at that point reads Stalin's directive of not one step back, which is of course when Stalin decrees that um, you know any retreat would be treated as a sign of uh, of cowardice and should be uh, should be uh, uh, anyone who runs should be shot essentially. Um, which I should note was also actually the same order. Uh, that Hitler put on the Wehrmacht at that time in Stalingrad. So not a great time to be on either side, really. We go from here to Lieutenant Kovalyov. We remember that Kovalyov is a friend of Tolio's. We last saw in part one yelling at the Shaposhnikovs uh, for their missing, for their not understanding the front. Uh, he's just gotten a letter from Tolia. Tolia is, I think, an equivalent or even higher rank than Kovalyov. And Kovalyov is pretty pissed because Tolia doesn't have any combat experience. Um, and we learn more about his unit and how Kovalyov uh, runs his unit. And we, in fact, we, we see a familiar face here as uh, Vavilov. Peter Vavilov. Who we, yes, it's, he's back. I it, put three exclamation <laughs> points in my book. I was like, yes, get that. Grossman, please don't kill my guy off. <laughs> it has been no joke almost 400 pages since we last saw Vavilov. I know. Grossman starts the book with him and it's just like, all right, wait a minute. We're going to go through 40 other people before we come back to him. <laughs> And so we go through the character of many of the people in uh, Kovalyov's brigade, uh, the different types, and there's all sorts that Grossman notes, um, kind of morally upright ones, ones who are not so morally upright, cowards, funny people, clowns, and they all have a respect for each other. But Vavilov has more than most, because uh, Vavilov is... Uh, contrary to expectations, because he's a peasant, is quite educated, in fact, and even um, on once or, one or, once or twice corrects people who are supposed to know better as their job the accountants um even the the commissar when he doesn't when he senses that the men aren't understanding what he's trying to say will turn to vavilov and ask him um, vavilov how would you explain this he's highly respected um he's got noted for having a, a moral up moral uprightedness for his character even when one of the red army troops um you know uh, um is, when they're leaving uh this another man basically tells a, a local peasant woman you can have all you know this this bunker i was using you can have it because your home has been destroyed but you better bring me a bottle of moonshine otherwise i'm going to destroy it in front of you um and she brings him all she has which is a shawl and he throws it down the ground and kind of laps in her face and gets ready to destroy it but vavilov small man compared to the much larger younger red army soldier goes over and basically threatens to fight curses him out for doing this to the peasant woman this this red army soldier kind of acts like he's above it and says whatever i didn't really want it anyway 
and tries to walk away and Vavilov like pulls him back and says no like pick up that shawl and give it back to her uh and this guy who's like kind of he's been chastised but doesn't want to act like it says you know whatever i've gotten when i was back in you know back east i had whatever i wanted i don't even need this 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 shawl and gives it back to the woman you never even wanted the shawl (laughs) (laughs) um so between that and another time when they were uh, on a train and being bombed by Messerschmitts, everyone was running about and of course between barrages it's them getting up and running about which is causing the most casualties whereas you know obviously just lying down anywhere is not great odds but it's like better odds than just sc- scampering about uh and so Vavilov in the middle of all that is just like sitting on the side of a on, on the side of the train smoking and yelling at everyone else like stop running around like it's gonna happen it's not and if you move around more it's more likely to happen so those two events has made him have made him a real um real standout among the, the troops, in addition to being probably the best educated among them, uh, which is where we end part four of our series and also part one of the book Stalingrad, confusingly. He really reminds me of um, Chapayev, mm-hmm. actually, kind of, which was... Elaborate. Ended up... No, I don't think I will. I think uh, on my Russian literature <laughs> podcast where I'm supposed to be an alleged expert, I think I'll leave it. Just reminds me of Chapayev. <laughs> No, Chapayev is a was a book and also a movie, but I think more importantly, a movie that is extremely famous and it details the life of a fictionalized version of a Red Army commander named Chapayev, and he's a very similarly kind of has this peasant upbringing, but he's molded by his political commissar to be a true Soviet general. And that there is a, there is a scene in the movie where there's a debate uh, between a, a peasant woman and this group of Red Army soldiers talking about uh, I can't remember exactly if it was crops stolen or what it, exactly mm. it was, and it kind of gets resolved in a similar way. And so it is kind of a familiar archetype. But the thing is that I think that Grossman does write a really compelling archetype because of the way that he's able to interweave these sort of other personal details that make it feel like it is really come to life. I don't I don't look at this and think uh, a boring book of socialist realism. No, <laughs> I, I look at this and I read like some of the the most gut wrenching scenes I've ever read in my life. Yeah. Yeah. It was a tough part. It was a tough part. It, it was it. This part had some real weight to it. Um, this is, of course, right before the Battle of Stalingrad itself is happening. So, we're... Which is amazing, first of all, <laughs> that Grossman was like, I don't know, I'll title the book Stalingrad. Will we get to Stalingrad? Halfway, maybe. We'll see about it. <laughs> we'll see about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I kind of like that, I'll say, because I, I feel like the focus is always on the actual big battle, but not on... There's nothing on the retreat. Nobody talks about the retreat. Mm-hmm. So I thought it was really interesting to read a couple of perspectives on that. Especially because uh, it's not... I mean, this part's interesting uh, for... I think you were talking about this, that this like not just being a piece of socialist realism. In some ways, I actually saw that more strongly in this, in this section um, than I did in other sections. Yeah. It came out a little yeah. bit more, at least for me, I mean, like especially in like the, the order of Stalin to you know, not one step back and Kremov reads it and feels like a sense of rightness mm-hmm, in it. Mm-hmm. That scene has a lot of weight in it. And, and like leading up into it, like they, the guy who gives it to him feels like 
it's no that he's got the sense of like almost terror or fear at this but Krimov is like no this is just this is right mm-hmm. and some moments like that or when later on we're, we're at the peasants and they're like anti-soviet and he kind of thinks like oh i've executed men for less but you know this isn't really going to change anything so he just chooses to leave and go sleep in the barn instead of staying in their company um it, it's a little bit stronger but all the same the like you've said um the the features it covers like the retreat so, uh, this is there's a lot of this is about the military but it's not a military book i would say it's not you're not seeing the glory of battle uh, as some authors like to portray in kind of hyper realistic senses uh you're seeing kremov and his lieutenant uh for the mortars just their entire section is just trying to get gas and the difficulties right, right. of finding the officer who will say yes and bullying that officer into saying yes and once they have the permission going to the fuel depot and getting denied because they don't fuel during the day because of the danger of german bombers it's very ordinary i mean ordinary ordinary for like a war it's just like just just going through the process of trying to do a retreat and how difficult that is and also the people who get left behind in the retreat uh, but by very virtue of not being kind of a just oh look at this glorious battle uh really i think like you were saying brings in this real sense of interest that i think you might not have in a more straightforward piece of raw raw red army i just thought it was comical actually a lot of the bureaucratic nature of right the the retreat and the fact that you literally do not have a, a country that has like you have literally lost this land you're setting up in like tents and like camping out in people's houses because you're on the retreat and you still can't get people fuel. It takes a thousand different people for this poor guy to go through to just get fuel for his tanks. <laughs> I mean, you know, probably wouldn't have been comical for him, but there is this kind of uh, dark sense of humor that pervades parts of it, for sure. Right. It, it actually, Kremov kind of thinks that as he's looking back on it, because all these officers are treating this so calmly. In fact, one officer is telling a story about like, oh, all these dead crews he's seen kind of gets Krimov mad about him just treating it as if he's out for like a an evening jaunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and as Krimov is walking through the camp, uh, he thinks to himself, it occurred to Krimov that these men ought to be taught in material terms that no part can survive without the whole. They needed what could be called an object lesson. The first time they retreated, their curtains would be confiscated. The second time, they'd lose their samovar. The third, their pillows. The fourth, their teacups and glasses. They'd have to make do with tin mugs. It should be clear to everyone that with each retreat, it would cost them more than the retreat before. In time, a man would be stripped of his decorations. Then he'd be demoted. And then he'd be shot. Uh, so a typical political commissar way to end that, but the underlying <laughs> joke is, you know, take, I mean, he's coming from from a perspective of of the frontline soldiers who are sacrificing everything um and they can't even get gas to retreat which they've been ordered to do because these other officers are too concerned with getting their samovars packed up mm-hmm. or getting their shave which like the the general is mad that Krimov interrupts his shave yeah yeah well he talks about how i can't remember if you read this quote yet or not about how retreat had become almost a habit for people which i thought was an interesting way of putting it especially when it's contrasted to the way that he describes retreating not as this sort of necessity, but actually almost allowing the invasion, right? The way that he says the the vast spaces to the east were a dangerous lure, the limitlessness of the Russian steppe was treacherous. It seemed to offer the possibility of escape, but this was an illusion. He describes them being 
like chained together. So if you retreat, you're not really, you know, you think you're getting into this, this open space that's safe, but really you're pulling it into your own country. That is obviously that's how it goes. Sure. Yeah. But I, I can kind of, in some senses, I do see there are some elements of socialist realism that do pervade this part. And there's that sort of, I don't know if you want to call it like crass idealism that can sometimes go along with that. The naive sense that, you know, Stalin's words just perfectly encapsulated how I was feeling. And it was just, you know, just burning with with righteousness for the way that, you know, Stalin writes this order. But, you know, honestly, I could kind of, I could kind of also get it. If you're just watching your entire country be destroyed as you're retreating and, you know, for someone to just put their foot down and say, hey, no more retreating. This is it. You got to you got to respect it. Yeah. Yeah. I, especially. Yeah. For for the time period it's being written in. And also, of course, this is the, I think I want to say that Christmas starts writing Stalingrad in like late 19, 1943, you know, still like midway through the war when yeah. he's flying high on on his yeah. books. Um, you know, it doesn't have the sort of uh, I will say the. Uh, bitterness or cynicism you see in his later writing or frankly even in like life and fate Mm -hmm. it's very like you say idealistic about its subject but i think for me the thing is that it's not always grossman i don't look at this and Mm -hmm. think that this is how grossman feels there are so many different characters like even the peasants that we were talking about that are you know supposed to be the example of everything that you're not supposed to be right in theory at least that's what they're supposed to be Mm. They're still relatable. They're still realistic. You, you don't look at them and you're not, like, you don't think, oh, how disgusting they think this. Like, it's not exact. Like, I don't know. It's a little bit hard to, I guess, pinpoint. But it, to me, it just feels very nuanced, all of it. And it's just confirmed that we're, I mean, we're going to have to do life and fate very soon after this. <laughs> yeah, really. I mean, to your point about that, um, the, the peasants who, are, who represent everything wrong, um, who, you know, again, Krimov, even like they are kind of the old man, he's pretty drunk when he's doing this, um, kind of acknowledges that Krimov could shoot him. Um, and Krimov, well, Krimov is thinking about it. So they're kind of, they kind of have an understanding of each other. Yeah. But Krimov kind of notes that he's sitting across from people who are supposed to be the enemy of everything he stands for, but they're also giving him their like homemade their homemade moonshine and like giving them a ton of pickles and tomatoes. And-, and their hospitality is phenomenal. Let's just put it like, I mean, yeah, it's great. So Kremov is simultaneously, you know, dunking on them and saying, well, they really aren't very hard workers, it sounds like, um, you know, not like those people out in, you know, other regions of the Soviet Union. Um, well, not, not exactly like that. He's He makes a comment about people who do the least often seem to complain the most about their mm-hmm. work. And it compares them to like the hard lands of Belarus, uh, where, you know, although there's very little out there, um, you know, any Red Army soldier who's wounded at their nose, he can be, he'll be taken in by, you know, 10,000 homes who are happy to happy to help despite having very little in comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is that. But again, like even even Kremov in the book thinks um, it's remarkable that I'm sitting across here and they're being very pleasant. They're not uh, a, like a vague enemy of the people who are trying to be wreckers because they just, you know, hate human idealism. Um, you know, they've got, I mean, their failings are, at least, of course, this is just a portrayal of people, but even Grossman trying to write people who are like, should be the opposite of what he's trying to portray, is like kind of like human failings. It's mm-hmm. just people who are like, they're just trying to get by and make their vodka, <laughs> really. Like they're just trying to live their lives and they don't care for the kohoses, really. Yeah. Um, and But also this at the same time, when Kremov goes to the peasant party after when he's invited by 
uh, by the woman. They even the peasants there. He kind of makes some jibes at them for being like, you know, are you really celebrating? Are you you really because they're they're having a massive celebration? I tell them it's because the Germans are going to come, so we don't want to give them anything. And he kind of says, "Are you celebrating because you don't want them to have anything, or are you celebrating?" you know, because they're coming and they kind of like give them sly glances and are almost amused at the question. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's clear, well, it doesn't seem like everyone's on the same page, but even while he's in that party, it, it, it's like treated as, it's treated almost nicely. Like when the woman who he spends the night with tells him, you know, you should, you should stay. And he says, it's like, it was a, it was a happiness. He doesn't say it like it's no, it's not false happiness. He says it's, it's happiness. This would be a very nice life to just stay here and we could farm and just live a normal, uh, yeah, cool. I mean, you know, it sounds like a great life. You just move out to the countryside and you start farming. That's <laughs> what Tolstoy would want. Exactly. But, um, he says it's not his happiness. It like, it, it acknowledges a difference in the types of happiness you can have and his sort of social, social, Soviet socialist happiness also sort of has this place for that. And, and so it reminds me of, this is what I was thinking of when I was reading that scene, actually, this is going to seem very off topic, but have you ever seen the Magnificent Seven? No. So it's an old cowboy movie with with Yul Brenner. Um, the basic plot line is like seven. Well, a cowboy gets hired by you know a poor Mexican town, who are like every year they get threatened by bandits and they don't can't afford it this year. So they they hire a cowboy to defend them, and he's like, I need a team. So he puts together seven other cowboys. Are they magnificent? They are. They, well, yeah, it's a magnificent, okay. the magnificent seven. Mm-hmm. Um, well, except for one of them, but because uh, he's too <laughs> young to be magnificent, he hasn't made a name for himself yet. And they they go on to teach the townspeople how to defend themselves, and you know they have a great battle and all that. And most of the cowboys die defending the town because although it's just a job, over the time they kind of learn to love the people. Um, and and this magnificent seven is a, is essentially a a remake of. Uh, Akira Kurosawa was Seven Samurai, which has basically the same plot line. Uh, a Japanese peasant village needs protection from bandits. They hire a samurai. He gets a bunch of other samurai. Uh, but the thing I want to focus in on is both movies, basically the seven uh, defenders share archetypes. Uh, and one archetype in both movies is the kind of young man. And the the Japanese version, or the, and well, the original version, the samurai film, uh, this is like kind of a young samurai. And over the course of the film, he lo- falls in love with a young woman of the peasant village. She, at the end of the film, asks him to stay with her. And he basically tells her because of his code that he has to live by as much as he'd like to. He doesn't really say that. It's a very kind of stoic move on his part. He has to go. He has to maintain his code, even though it clearly pains him a great deal. Now, in The Magnificent Seven, the same scene, the same scene actually happens, except the young, uh, the young man chooses to leave behind being a cowboy and, um, and decides to stay with the, the young woman on, on her farm on her family's farm and as the two surviving cowboys ride off one of them kind of makes a laconic comment about the guy staying behind and the other guy looks back and says well not really so you you know don't look down on him in fact um, he actually he actually chose the right choice uh, because the farmers are the only ones who ever win in these kind of situations uh, which i've always under- understood as kind of a well in the same way that seven samurai is kind of a meditation on the const- the constraints of uh, late samurai period the Magnificent Seven almost feels like a meditation on the cowboy film itself, and far from being a glorious adventure, most of them end up dead. And in fact, the only one who really ends up well is the one who decides to stop being a cowboy and start being a farmer. Um, you know, only the farmers win. And that's kind of how this scene almost felt to me when I was reading it through, because regardless of how people are coming out on this, whatever, regardless of what side they, side they are, and, you know, up to this point, um, Grossman's really been, as as a narratorial perspective, has really been harping on Keep in mind, you know, your individual fate is also tied to that of the nation. Uh, in the same way, he's been talking about that with, with Vavilov when he want, was doesn't want to leave. And we've been talking about it even in this very section when um, Krimov is thinking about these people, these officers treating uh, the war as if they have unlimited land to retreat to. Uh, these people are living 
despite being just abandoned by the Red Army, um, and even the early prose of describing the scene being that these people have been abandoned to darkness, they're sort of, not anti-Soviet, just like a Soviet, just, it's just a peasant life, is treated very kindly and like a happiness that Krimov doesn't even condemn. And so in that similar way, Stalingrad is kind of a meditation on the cowboy epic. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's why after this, we're only be co- going to be covering uh, books by John Dos Passos yes, for yes, the next year. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be a weird year, but we're going to do it. We're going to get through it. <laughs> uh, actually, I don't even know. I don't think John Dos Passos was a, I don't think he was a cowboy writer. Um, I think I'm thinking of a different guy. How about collect some facts next time before coming <laughs> to the podcast? <laughs> um, anyway, but yeah, that's that's that. I also, speaking of kind of the very, very human elements, go back to the beginning for a moment because I really want to talk about two things. I want to talk about uh, Genia Novikov and I want to talk about um, Vera and Zima. Sure. Uh, I think it's this is, um, I, I just, I kind of, I, I mean, I have a good time whenever Grossman kind of goes into talking about, I don't know, humans because he's a very, uh, in, in your favorite favorite term non-totalizing about human behavior i'd say it i'd say that i would say that <laughs> in fact you're quite he's somebody who understands that the the beauty of life is made up of you know light and shadow light and shadow naturally yeah mm-hmm. <laughs> um I, I think his i think what he has to say about the way that people understand each other or frankly fail to understand each other and sometimes even relationships where they fail to understand each other are just as strong or stronger yeah, this was a really interesting passage. I know where you're going with it, and I just thought, like, man, nobody went here the way that Grossman went here. Yeah. Like, for real. Yeah, because it's so relevant, too, because so many of these characters, like, so much of the conflict, uh, well, frankly, between the Zhenya and Marussia and Sofia Sipovna is born of misunderstanding or them not really understanding, like, each other in a way, mm-hmm. or, frankly, understanding each other too well. Like, Zhenya and... But despite the fact that Genya totally gets Vera because Vera is just like her mother, Marussia, they understand each other just well. But in the same way that Genya still argues with Marussia, she argues with, with Vera mm-hmm. <laughs> because they frankly understand each other a little too well. And that's why, in some senses, they right. fight because Marussia and Vera both have that same temper and Genya just can't help but <laughs> right. like be mad at it, even though it, it's she knows that that's like it's kind of unreasonable. Which is why I think it's interesting that, like, Genya talking to Novikov tells the romance of Tristan and Isolde running off from all their responsibilities to go live in the forest, you know, again, a German fairy tale, uh, and tells it as, like, the great, you know, a great romance, which is now dead in their era, uh, when Vera comes home and tells a similar story of, well, frankly, the same, well, a similar idea of a, a German officer falling in love with a, a Russian woman um, and him giving up his life for her and his only regret being that he couldn't tell her that uh, he didn't regret anything about his decisions. Genya calls it contemptible mm-hmm. for their time, despite being kind of not entirely, I would say, kind of the same story in a sense, adapted for the era. They they are, it, it's too similar of a perspective. It's fascinating. I don't know. It sounds like you had something to say on it. I just thought the way that the Grossman portrayed the relationship between Vera and Zena was interesting because basically the whole scene that he depicts them in is where they kind of have the same reaction to what they're talking about, but they are coming from a completely different angle or, you know, they're laughing about something and it's a lighthearted conversation, but Vera's thinking like, oh, wait, no, wait a minute. I was actually serious about that. It was just interesting. I don't know how to explain it. It's kind of um, a really good example of something that you can recognize uh, while it's being described, but it's hard to put into words. 
Right. It's a feeling that everybody's felt in a conversation where you're like, is this person actually understanding me while we're talking? Mm-hmm. Or what's perhaps even scarier is the fact that maybe you wouldn't even know that it was happening. Yeah, which they don't. Like, what if your greatest friendship is born out of a misunderstanding and a cont- continual series of misunderstandings? Yeah, or maybe even more strongly, a mis- uh, 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 an understanding of someone else of who they think you are in leaning into that. Like Zima, it. who it says, leans into her image, which Vera has of her in her mind, uh, you know, unrelated to maybe how she feels about herself. Mm-hmm. You know, she, you know, Vera sees her as graceful. So she has like, when she knows Vera's approaching, I think it's mentioned that she kind of, uh, you know, adopts a certain book and reads it in a certain way to give mm-hmm. off a certain vibe. Sure. Yeah, it was just, I don't know. I, I like this part a lot. It was a good part to discuss. Yeah, I, I just, um, Grossman's just great at writing varied character interactions between I don't know, consistent characters who you, f- you feel their their motivations and the way it plays out. Yeah, like, I know this book is only 950 pages, but I just want, like, every character to have their own book. Yeah, really? Yeah. Yeah. And also, Grisman's just so good at zingers. I want to... Please bring us the zinger of the week. My favorite one from this part in, in chapter 69, um, nice. Kovalyov is... <laughs> Kovalyov is thinking of, of, his, of his men. I wanted them... Uh, Reshchikov is kind of a, a joker and a gifted teller of stories. And uh, it's it's written about him. People liked him, but they also enjoyed making fun of him. They respected him, but this respect concealed a trace of mockery. He was treated, in short, the way Russians often treat their village and factory poets, their storytellers and domestic philosophers. Um, <laughs> if there's like one single sentence I would give to anyone coming into just like Slavic studies... Mm-hmm. That'd probably be it. <laughs> that was a good one. Anything you read, eh, some amount of seriousness, some amount of mockery. Mm-hmm. Between the, those two things, you're going to get the tone of whatever that author's going for. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I, I like that because I think sometimes people take things too seriously. It's an opinion I hold pretty firmly. Yeah. M- most things are not that serious. No, no. Um, which, which does is, sound uh, weird to say in a long series on perhaps one of the world's most serious topics. <laughs> uh yeah but amidst uh, the very serious topic uh human life goes on in all its glory shortcomings ordinary dash heroic moments ordinary dash ordinary moments mm-hmm. as we've been talking about mm-hmm. among the men who uh, uh the men and women who are who act heroically and among the men and women who in the middle of a retreat are trying to figure out where to put the where to where to safely keep the drapes so they can reset up a nice looking hq uh <laughs> you know a couple of miles down the road it's gotta look good yeah okay i gotta say um you know i do normally love grossman's prose however it's been I, the the way grossman uh, writes women in this in this part is becoming increasingly apparent to me that every time a woman's introduced like it's really her beauty that gets focused on and most of the time it's just like hey, throwing off like okay she's a beautiful woman uh, it's like every every third woman who's not old is well actually frankly like every woman who's not old is described as beautiful which I guess mm-hmm. there's a certain amount of equality to that uh, I also want to say when he does get into specifics it's kind of weird just like <laughs> which part were you talking were you thinking of I'm like when he's thinking of the the young woman in the general's office uh, where he describes her as what was it she has the the ru- rosy sorry this is for memory the rosy cheeks and the shoulders of a of a mature woman but she has the hands uh in the lips of a young the hands and lips and eyes of a young girl uh it, hmm. it was 
and maybe maybe again i've been blind to this because i was reading like actually recently like a month and a half back reading uh murakami's 1q84 and if you've never read 1q84 um then you aren't gonna be familiar with just the absolute relentlessness with which murakami talks about women's bodies like mm-hmm. you cannot talk about a single woman without talking about her her, her chest mm-hmm. uh, even if you've like met that woman many times before uh, i think a woman gets murdered at some point and all her friend can think about is like her naked friend's breasts in the moment of murder it's real weird it's like mm-hmm. a thousand pages long and like half the characters are women so it's non-stop it's like it's a real it's it's a real gauntlet so maybe i've been like snow blind after that experience to things were just being like uh oh, she had adult shoulders but childlike hands uh <laughs> yeah but i kind of yeah. stuck out when he would like describe women as like high-breasted or or similar things very very uh descriptions that stuck out to me yeah i, I don't have much to say on that other than yeah like yeah i don't think there's too much to to i thought you were gonna talk about victor and nina potentially oh we can talk about that too i just i think i've been thinking about it a lot because I, I i think when i was reading I've been reading Grossman's other short stories, and I also, that was also what I was noticing because I think it was in the Hell of Treblinka when he kept talking about like women in Treblinka as like as beautiful. I was like, it's I don't know, if this is like really the time. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> obviously, you do you. Yeah, you're the writer here. You're the one who you're the one who was in Treblinka. Uh, but I think after that, it starts standing out to me more reading this part too. But yeah, let's talk about Victor and Nina for a second. It, it it's not a, a specific thing I was going to say about it, but it, rather a, a more general maybe comparison from an authorial perspective which is sometimes the uncomfortable comments are not made from the author but from the perspective of the character and when you have a book like one that's written from Tolstoy or one that's written from Grossman the way that it's separated is not always clear and it can the way that they switch between their perspective and the character's perspective can sometimes make it seem like uh, the author feels this way uh, when in fact he is writing it from the character's perspective. So that's what I was just going to say on that. Right. I don't have a specific example of that, but I was wondering if that's where you were going with that train of thought. But it, it is something that I've, yeah, the, <laughs> the more you read, the more you're like, okay. And I'm sure there is a more scholarly explanation that you could give, <laughs> but for all intents and purposes, it is a little weird. I, I don't know if you need a super really scholarly explanation for a history of men writing books where they're like really get into talking about women's bodies. That one's just kind of a. I'm sure someone's tried. Yeah, yeah. There's this. Oh god. There's this series of um, noir uh, novels I love. I honestly I wish I could remember the the guy who writes it is kind of great Peter Vox or something like V A C H S and. If you look at his his I, I got the books because just because of his his author profile, which is like he's got a man who's got like a eye patch over one eye, he looks totally wild, uh, and it's like yeah, this man's been a lawyer, an activist, the director of like a juvenile prison for whatever, and like this is a weird. It's it's all from the '90s. You expect this noir series to be like really grimy and gross, uh, which it is, but it's like he's writing a grimy and gross world, but it doesn't feel like one that the author is condoning. It feels like one that this these are the ones the characters exist in and try to fight back on like considering that was written in like the late 80s early 90s the fact that um there's like one of the characters is a trans woman and the guy is like the main character absolutely goes to bat for her and is like willing to like fight anyone who is you know who um 
goes after her and uh she like talks through her struggles and like has a very human arc through this and like it's a, a very it's a cast of people who come from very different backgrounds all treated very respectfully not at all what i'm expecting for this mm-hmm. series i'm like on the whole the noir series is like yeah relatively good for its time period but also like you can really tell the author's fetishes because in every single book there's like one woman involved with the mystery and she always has the exact same body type and the guy gets really into talking about like those features and the main character always sleeps with her and you're like okay this is like on the whole this is a pretty good series like a little weird how obviously i can see that you were <laughs> yeah <laughs> like a little like turned on when you're writing these scenes it's really apparent um so like okay can i try it can i try yeah. it okay go for it i am gonna bat for grossman i'm not saying that okay. this is my 100 percent opinion because i would need a lot more rereading but i think that and this maybe doesn't work for all the scenes but just trying to work through this if you were on the front lines of a very brutal war i think that just conceptually the the idea of beauty might be very striking to you just in a broad aesthetic sense when you are literally seeing people just die around you you're just like face down in the trenches like day after day and so, like, these specific parts, I'm wondering if they don't correlate with some broader sense of of beauty, of childlike nature that Grossman mm. wants to have preserved in people. So mm. adult shoulders could be corresponding to hard work, heavy labor, all the things that you would be doing on a front line, I would imagine. I mm. have not fought in war, would not like to. <laughs> having these sort of kind of childlike eyes perhaps it's linked to you know she still retains a sort of childlike perception of the world which is in some sense beautiful that anybody who has seen what war has looked like would be able to maintain that now that's that would be a scholarly spin is that what Grossman was thinking or did he just think she was pretty I don't know I really Mm. don't but I do think that for Grossman specifically, it is a little bit of a different case than some other writers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's yeah. I don't even apply this as like feels super egregious in the way I've read other books. Uh, it's just kind of funny how like every single woman who's like not an old woman is beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, kind of yeah. it. It kind of reminds me of there's this. Oh god, this series. When I was really young, I don't. Uh, what is it called? The Dresden Files, where like every single woman is like the most beautiful woman this character has ever seen, even if it's like some some kid that like he saw grow up and is like, yeah, now that she's like eighteen, she's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And she's like, I'm seeing a weird trend here, dude. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> also, that particular case, mm, real weird. Uh, anyway, I don't think Grossman's that bad, but I will. I don't. I don't know. I I wouldn't. I would never go that. I would not say that. That's not definitely not Grossman. It's just kind of funny. Uh, this there are cases where I'm like like Murakami, or I'm like, could I like I. I had to put the book down because, like, this was just so much mm-hmm. versus Grossman, where it's just, like, kind of funny. Yeah. I don't know. I think that it's, pro- I mean, probably the case, kind of like you're describing, but I, I don't have it worked out yet, but there are definitely, he I, constantly on his mind are questions of love. And this is, mm-hmm. I, I, across a lot of socialist realism that I've read, really pervasive questions for the authors that you would not think that would be the case for and it's just it's just constantly there beating in the back of the characters heads that's a good point if we especially want to apply it to cream the way that cream as sort of the local upright communist of the book versus when we're like we're reading very early 
you know, going back to Envy, for example, which I think is kind of characteristic Envy or mm-hmm. Cement or even to some degree Vasilisa Maligina, um, the idea of, of family and parenthood is really put under the idea of creating the next generation. That's the important thing. Uh, and we need to raise these children collectively and the family unit needs to be broken down. Um, and we need to find a new way that's not so outdated and capitalist and, and so on and such forth. Whereas Kremov, the upstanding communist of this book, at least so far, really wants a family. He, he explicitly said that he kind of wants a family commune. He wants his brother to come so he can take his nieces and nephews out to the zoo when he comes home from work and, you know, putting them on his shoulders and run them around. He's, he's like very family oriented. When the woman um, invites him to stay, he's really tempted, even though he knows it's mm-hmm. not his happiness. He acknowledges as it as a happiness. So yeah, um, it's definitely the question of love, even, even from it is, I don't know. I don't want to call it like, like kind of a, a love in a more traditional sense than you see in like early Soviet literature, but kind of is. And like thinking about like, in the other books, people are trying to create a new form in, in uh, you know, early Soviet work or, or late Russian Empire, trying to create new forms of love or family, whereas this one is, I don't know, it's re- relatively conservative in comparison. Yeah, it is actually, which is kind of tracked with the times as it yeah. developed. That's not, a, I guess, a, a jarring. I mean, well, it is jarring as you're, no, you're yeah. reading it, but knowing a thing or two about Soviet history as I do, it is kind of, <laughs> right you get it all right you get it yeah yeah no it's it's not surprising but just we've been uh, just uh, like reading these 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 uh texts one after another really it gives the hammering the point <laughs> yeah like the yeah. differences in time periods yeah I'm um just, is there any other broad oh yes go on no i this is this is my wrap-up thought is just i'm excited to have this as one of the core foundational pieces that we can refer back to and be like remember in stalingrad this part it's gonna be great I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to it, especially as we get into uh, presumably um, life and fate and on, maybe on a sooner timeline than we'd guessed to ourselves. Yeah. And then everything flows. It's it's going to be great. <laughs> uh, just welcome back to the the uh, Vasily Grossman podcast. I stand by it. It's like our best series <laughs> for me. I feel like. Yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. It's been I don't know why, but it, this feels like kind of a moment of like. I don't know why Look, reading this book has felt very it makes me think about our other work a lot more or thinking of versus early Soviet stuff versus Tolstoy, you know, arguments happening in other, you know, in, in Gorky's work and so mm-hmm. on and such. Forth. It makes me think about a lot of what we've been reading previously mm-hmm. in a way that not every work we've read previously has kind of made me think mm-hmm. self-referentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's well, I don't it's fun. It's definitely a tough read. Yeah. For many reasons. Yes. Yeah. It is. Yeah. It's not one I could say you can jump in, jump right into. This is. It's not a fun weekend read, to say the least. No. No. It's. Yeah. It also requires, I would say, like kind of a high level of, not high level of knowledge, but like a a non zero level of knowledge of World War II on the Eastern Front, which Grossman, although he's trying to, you know, set the scene for you you know, is writing for the Soviet public in right, like right, right. this, this well, not necessarily in the sixties, but like people who presumably have a cultural memory of the war rather than the people who maybe have a cultural memory of the Western front or of the Pacific war, uh, and so on and such forth. Yeah. There are a lot of things that can be left unsaid, I think. Mm-hmm. So anyways, yeah, it's a good book. I want to hear what other people have to say about it. 
drop us a line tipsy tolstoy at gmail.com we'll read it on the podcast and we'll talk about it yeah um this is this has been good i've had a lot of fun doing this uh matt i know it's in our script part five stalingrad we're gonna be reading that next time or part five of part two it's very confusing and i'm confusing it more by saying it more often but that's kind of my goal here Um, (laughs) i've lost track of what we're reading next yeah (laughs) good um so we're continuing on uh presumably i don't know if we have like exact page number but i imagine we're gonna be reading till about in the in the new york review of books edition we're probably gonna be reading to about page 500 give or take like a chapter We're, we're gonna read through chapter 19 as you were as you were bumbling on that, I, I was quickly, furiously looking at where we were going to end. Very beautiful. So, yeah, so in part two, chapters one through 19. Boom. Before we go on to our you know wonderful outro that I'm sure everyone listens to and we don't know that everyone turns off because of statistics. Absolutely. Uh, on a scale of one to Yeltsin, uh, how drunk are you? Seven. Nice. I'm, I'm, I was up there. I'm, I'm coming down because we didn't take a break in this episode, and it was a really right. long episode. Like, remember... When we would do a 35 minute episode, we're like, boom, podcast. Now it's like, like we're going to hit an hour and a half, presumably somewhere in the series. And I'm not saying that's going to be our standard forever, but for this series, it definitely is. We honestly might in this one because we still need to add the context and we're about an hour and 16 in prior to editing. So yeah, that's a little bit of movie magic for everyone listening at home. So for all of you who just listened to that part, we're actually on one minute or one hour and 12 minutes. And that's <laughs> how much content was taken out. Ooh. Scary. Scary. Cameron, we, you can't leave me hanging. Where did, where did you end up? Sure. I am. So unfortunately, I did, I did too much talking. So I, I only got through one and a half of these tall boys. Uh, so I, I'm only like a four, I would say. Okay. Oh, They're stouts, it. but they're only like 6%. So they're not really like the alcohol content i expect of a stout but still good i've enjoyed them yeah, so far yeah yeah and it's it's the flavor that counts exactly great flavor highly recommended if you live in an area where they sell central california valley <laughs> beers and before we let you go we wanted to extend a sincere thank you to all of our current patrons Haley, blake sharon maya pack rob zachary austin isaac brett caitlin shirley eli julie stephanie alex Yitza, Joanne, Mysterious Donor Dude, Elise, Cole, Allison, Brandon, Arini, Lou, Jesse, Paige, Jack, Daniel, Darren, Daniel, Janice, and Madeline, and Jeff. Oh, okay, all in one breath. I'm, I'm catching up to how Matt can do it now. Uh, podcasting isn't free and grad school doesn't pay very well, so if you're interested in joining out with our current patrons to keep the show running, take a look at our Patreon at patreon.com slash tipsytolstoy. The music used in this episode was Soviet March by Toasted Tomatoes. You can find more of their stuff on toastedtomatoes.bandcamp.com and also on YouTube under the same username. If you're looking for other places to find us, you can also follow us on Instagram at Tipsy Tolstoy Podcast or on Twitter at Tipsy Tolstoy, or you can join our email list on our website, tipsytolstoy.com.